Good morning, everyone. This is the D-O-L-W Podcast 3. We are a group of podcasters who advocate for the little voices or the unheard voices in the church. Those are the voices that are often marginalized for speaking up. Um, Also, um, maybe they are labeled uh, as causing division. Then they are isolated, ignored, and oftentimes will leave the church. We offer a different approach. We offer an approach to grow in holiness. Uh, I ride with the, the Carmel brand. We look into the lives of the saints. And we um, try to teach ways for you to learn how to talk to your bishop. And, um, you know, that the laity in the church have, we have rights we have duties, and we have obligations. And with that, uh, I want to tell you about what we're going to do today. Today, we have been reading from the book called The Call of the Lady by O.V. Cruz. And we are going into the, uh, we are in the section on instruction. He has his book divided into three different parts, and this is the second part. It's on the instruction, the instructions that come from the church. This particular instruction that we're working out of today is called the collaboration between the lay and the and, and the clergy. We also will do a Bible reading today, have a Bible reading, uh, Matthew 20, 1 through 7, and that is on the workers in the vineyard. And then we get to hear from the great St. John Paul II in, Christ, in Christi Fidelis Lecce. Um, and we are going to be reading paragraphs that are involved with called to holiness and holiness in the world. All these voices um, are echoing the voice of the church through these documents and instruction and, and the Bible readings. So with that, I also want to make one little other point that I think uh, Ovi Cruz pointed out, um, the lay faithful. We are the largest number in the church uh, as compared to the religious and the clergy, the lay faithful make up 99.96% of those workers in the vineyard. And the clergy or the religious are next, and then the clergy are the fewest in number. And we also have to keep in mind, and uh, Ovi Cruz points this out, that the lay faithful, if it weren't for the lay faithful, receiving the sacraments of baptism, communion, reconciliation, um, often called to the vocation of matrimony, which is a sacrament in the Catholic Church. Um, without those things, um, we provide, or with those things, we provide the future clergy and the religious. It's through the lay faithful and through the the sacrament of matrimony that these things happen in the church and so very important to the church. So the lay role in the church is so very important to the continuation of the church in the world. All right, with that, we're going to start reading from uh, O.B. Cruz, and I'm going to read you just, so we are in part two, but I want to go back a little bit because it's been taking a long time to get through this chapter, just to remind you of what an instruction is. An instruction is a Vatican document, very important in the church. So here's the beginning of... uh, uh, Ovi Cruz's part two. When the when the Holy See issues an instruction, there are three primary intentions behind it. 
First, there is something wrong, doubtful, or questionable happening in a good portion of the universal church that needs to be rectified, clarified, or defined. And second, the Vatican document thus issued officially and definitively puts forward what should be done as well as what should be avoided regarding the concrete matter under under consideration. Third, the universal church, through the regional and or national competent hierarchy, is thus formally enjoined and accordingly accepted, expected to follow the instruction. Now, I'm going to digress here. So, so these instructions are very important and, um, you know, they are to be followed in the church. Okay, back to the reading. This title given to a particular document issued by the Holy See in a precise and candid manner presents the issue, enacts the resolution thereof, and ordains the latter due observance. The pertinent instruction herein referred to carries the following subtitle. I'm going to digress here. So we're this. He's explaining here that we're going. We're reading in the collaboration, and this is an instruction to the church, um, and why and why it is important on certain questions regarding the collaboration of the non-ordained faithful in the sacred ministry of priests. In other words, the instruction is concerned with working relationship between the laity and the clergy. And that is what we're reading from today, okay, in um, in this OV Cruise Part 2. We're reading about the collaboration of the clergy and the laity. So, it, and this is back to OV Cruise. It is significant that the instruction modo proprio calls and thus qualifies the said working relationship as collaboration. And among other things, this term clearly implies that lay people and clerics are in fact working together, that they are co-equal in their corporate work, and they should therefore relate with one another precisely as co-workers. Okay, with that, we're going to begin on page 102 in this section on collaboration. Rights and duties of the Christian faithful. When the document speaks of the rights and duties of the Christian faithful, it is making reference more specifically to the provisions of the Code of Canon Law as expressed in Canons 208 through 223 CIC. Among other things, it would be good to observe that the Code carries instead the following title, the obligations and rights of all the Christian faithful. In addition to the to the fact that the code then makes reference to the laity, the religious, and the clergy as composite whole of Christian faithful, it nevertheless legislated first on their obligations and only thereafter about their rights. The document, however, has adopted the standard way of expressing substantially the same reality, although it speaks first of rights and thereafter of the duties of the laity. When delving into the intricacy of the difference between the approach of the document and the code of canon law, as well as the distinction between duties and obligation, at this juncture, it would suffice to say the following practical note. While people of today are very conscious of their rights, they seem to be 
to conveniently ignore their obligations and duties. That is why there are innumerable quasi-organizations, movements, and pursuant rallies in promotion of rights, but almost nothing is said about obligations and duties. The Code of Canon Law might simply want to forward and emphasize the importance of obligations, without, however, really ignoring the significance of rights. The reason one follows the other. Rights and duties of the lay faithful. Like the Code of Canon Law, the document then speaks of the rights and duties of the lay faithful, in line also with the subsequent codal provisions on the obligations and rights of the lay members of the Christ, of Christ faithful. Needless to say, the focus in the na- here is the nature and the consequences of being a baptized layperson in the church, viz. what they are entitled to do as well as they are ob- obliged to do in and for the church. In other words, the subject concerned is categorically the laity in the church, viz. what are their rights and duties in accordance with their canonical lay status in the church. They acquire this status by their reception of the sacrament of baptism, according to church doctrine and law. Baptism confers upon the recipient a status or standing as far as her mission and pursuant organizational structure is concerned. The said spiritual and juridical status definitely carries certain rights and duties therewith, just like any secular civil status. Among the more more signal rights attributed to the lay faithful in the church is their acknowledged freedom in evangelizing secular affairs by making these more human, more reasonable, and fair. And among the more manifest duties of the laity is the mandate to strive so the message of salvation can be known and and may be accepted by the people of the world over, considering that the lay faithful are also among all the people and all over the world. Again, remember, everyone, that the lay people make up in the church 99.96% of the Christian faithful. All right, part C, capability of admissions to functions. There is a distinction between functions in and for the church that lay persons have. Those that the lay faithful can and may assume by right as a baptized person in the church, and those that they are considered doctrinally and canonically capable of having, thereby exercising by the expressed assignment, commission, delegation, or deputation by the competent church authority. I need to take a break here. Just going to take a quick break, everyone. Uh, My throat gets so dry when I'm reading. Okay. In simple words, there are functions which belong to the members of the lay faithful that are already theirs by doctrine and law, and those which they may have when explicitly given them by those who, who by doctrine and law, too, have the competence to do so. As examples, to evangelize people is a role that is already theirs by being baptized persons in the church. To administer church temporalities is a task that can be theirs only when duty authorized by the competent church authority concerned. The thumb rule in making this distinction is the functions or ministries or offices that belong to the clergy categorically by virtue of their reception of the sacrament of holy orders are exclusively theirs. 
If doctrine teaches and the law provides what ordained ministers do, not really do on account of their sacred sacred ordination may be then assumed by or given to the members of the laity. Correction of abuses. Where the existence of abuses or improper practices have been established, pastors will promptly employ those means considered necessary to prevent their dissemination and to ensure that the correct understanding of the nature of the church is not impaired. In particular, they will apply the provided disciplinary norms to promote knowledge of and assiduous respect for the ecclesial communion. Where abusive practices have become widespread, it is absolutely necessary for those who exercise authority to intervene responsibly so as to promote communion, which can only be done by adherence to the truth. Communion, truth, justice, and peace, and charity are all interdependent realities. Abuses or Improper Practices The document makes mention of abuses or improper practices in general. For example, without the least giving concrete examples therefore, thereof, because such would not be needed, in principle, such misdeeds or malpractices can and do happen when the functions of the clergy are illegitimately exercised by the laity and vice versa. When this when this happens, the victim therefore is not only the truth about the canonical ecclesial distinction between the laity and clergy, but also the imperative of order and discipline in their ecclesial community. Correcting authority. As there is a hierarchy in the church, a foremost ministerial obligation of which is ecclesial governments, there is also a ranking among the church authorities who have the burden of correcting the above set abuses or improper practices when and where extinct. That is to say, depending on the extent of such misdeeds or malpractices, the church authority with the burden of correcting them is the one immediately concerned in the place where the violations of the church doctrine and law exist. The parish priests for the parish, the archbishop for the archdiocese, the National Episcopal Conference for the country, the Supreme Pontiff for the Universal Church. I want to digress here. So, um, you know, our watcher group that, you know, what we do is we watch things going on in our Lansing diocese and, um, and we, when we see something wrong, we, um, we are obligated and we, to speak the truth. And that is what we do. And we try to teach other voices, you know, people who have left the church, people who have maybe left their parish because something happened. And they do go to another parish, but they're still frustrated and still um, that memory stays with them. You know, our memories don't leave us. Um, they are always with us, and it's it's important to put a voice on it that, um, you know, especially when it's a voice of truth, and they feel like, you know, you throw up your hands and you just can't do anything about it, and so you know when you leave, you have that on your conscience, like, more than likely it could happen again, and so we here are advocates to change that to expose the expose the evil and um to correct the to correct it 
And um, there are proper channels that we can go through to do these things, you know, by writing to our bishop. Um, we offer you guides in, in teaching guides in, in helping you do that. All right, back to the reading. Promotion of communion. Unity, community, and communion. These are the progressive essential features of the church. With her unity, the church is one in faith and morals throughout the world. In her community, the Christian faithful have their sense of belonging, affiliation, and solidarity as one composite people of God. Through her communion, which is the, cult the culmination of her unity and community, there is intimate Christian relational harmony, love, and peace. The standard enemy of communion and so of unity and community consists in ecclesial disorder and indiscipline. These precisely take place when there are abuses and improper practices, particularly when some members of the Christian faithful do what they should not or not do what precisely they should in the matter of functions, roles, or offices. Practical Conclusions After all the above three after all above three articles, which are by and large theological and ecclesiological in substance and spirit, it would be now in order to hereunder consider some of the more practical observations expressly pointed out by the document titled Instruction, concretely in the matter of collaboration between the laity and the clergy and for the church. Correct Terminology Considering that there are terms which could have been less properly used above as well as in the preceding articles, it is now time to correctly understand and thereby use them as printed by this instruction. Functions, Munera. Functions, just like other generic terms as a role, task, and assignment, refer to anything relevant to something that has to be attended and or done in and for the church, it must be assumed and performed by either members of the laity by virtue of their baptism or by the constituents of the clergy on account of their ordina ordination. Ministries or ministeria. Ministry is more specific word in the following sense. Ordinarily, they are exercised by members of the clergy in conjunction with a pastoral assignment thereto given by the competent church authority. Due, however, to necessity or expediency, even members of the laity may have ministries on provisio that these do not require sacred orders and that the proper delegation or deputation is given by the competent church authority. I'm going to take a drink here again. I'm drinking lemon water this morning. Warm lemon water is so soothing when you have a dry throat which is brought on by allergies this time of year. Okay, of offices and officia. An office, on the other hand, is more formal and restricted terminology in the sense that they are in principle reserved to members of the clergy on account of their ordained status and its pursuant ecclesial consequences. Thus, it is that the phrase ecclesiastical office by norm is held by clerics. Unless the law says otherwise and the competent church authority concedes to assign it to certain lay people for pastoral and or administrative reasons. 
Delegation pro- proper is required for the lay persons to assume offices proper. Ministry of the Word. The reality in the church termed ministry is generally understood as pastoral preaching, catechesis, and all other forms of Christian instruction. Foremost and most official of the ministerial agenda in the church is the liturgical homiletic service. The law provides that depending on certain conditions and or the knowledge, fidelity, and personal Christian attributes of some members of the laity, they may be deputized to assume the formal catechetical ministry inclusive of pastoral preaching. The norms to be then observed are those provided by the Episcopal Conference covering the ecclesial, ecclesiastical territory concerned. Foremost of the conditions that would warrant the delegation of lay people to the official teaching ministry is, ne- is, necess- is necessity and usefulness in specific cases. In other words, the deputation is by and large warranted in order to make up for the absence or shortage of ordained teachers. I'm going to take another drink here. Okay, homiletic service. The homily proper as ministerial teaching forms an integral part of a Eucharistic celebration. It is wherefore evident that the preaching of the homily is the exclusively reserved to the members of the clergy. These include the deacons, the priests, and the bishops. In fact, it is such an important and delicate ministry in the church that it is not enough for clerics to simply to be simply ordained in order to give homiletic services. <coughs> it is also necessary that the clerics concerned should have the required ministerial faculties to, licit- to licitly preach homilies in the name of Christ and his universal church. The homiletic preaching of the word, as well as the administration of sacraments, are essential and central to the mission of the church. For this reason, deacons, priests, and even bishops, divested of the required ministerial faculties, may not licitly preach the homily, may not validly, validly administer the sacraments, unless under very urgent conditions, which are admittedly few and far between. Part 4. Particular Structures of Collaboration the, there are three standard or common ecclesial structures in the archdiocese that clearly affirm the collaboration between the laity and the clergy. Presbyterial Council. By its very title, it is evident that the, the constituent members of a presbyterial council may only be presbyters or priests. The law, however, does not forbid that there should be that there could be no lay members in any permanent and or ad hoc committees that the council may form for any concrete agenda, but said lay committee members do not have membership proper in the Presbyterial Council. Pastoral Council. The Pastoral Council, on the other hand, should have lay people as members. This is very important. I'm digressing here. This is very important to the church um, that the lay members um, be part of the Pastoral Council um, for the different member for the different things going on in that particular uh, parish, 
All, back to the reading. Although its presidency is always held by the pastor, the reasons for this arrangement are simple, viz. the lay members would know more and better what their fellow lay people want and or need or expect. The pastoral president, on the other hand, has the responsibility of overseeing the common pastoral welfare of the portion of God's people placed under his pastoral care with the collaboration of his pastoral council. Financial Council It is quite obvious that lay people may be made constituent members of the financial council. The reason? The temporal order is the domain of the laity. The law only provides the following conditionalities. One, that it is preferable that the lay members thereof are not related to by blood or affinity to the pastor. To the pastor. Two, that it is desired that the said lay members be noted for their integrity and expertise in financial matters. And three, the pastoral presides, the pastor presides as at the council. Liturgical celebration. The general norm in the, in the matter of the litur- liturgical celebrations proper is both clear and practical. Proper liturgical prayers, vestments, and actions to be said, done, or word, or word by presiding cleric, respectively, may not be licitly assumed by lay people. Otherwise, there could be sad and unnecessary confusion on the matter of who is what and who does what in the said celebrations. It is such confusion that somehow contributes to the identity crisis that could happen to both lay and ordained faithful. Another drink here, folks. The Sunday Celebrations. This has direct reference to the, those Sunday celebrations, particularly in chapels and oratories, which the pastor could not present, or the pastor, pastor could not presence for one reason or another. So, just digressing here, so that you know, if the pastor cannot come, in case I made this confusing, um, could not be there. These these are the. Let me just read that again, guys. Okay. This has direct reference to those Sunday celebrations, particularly in chapels and oratories, which the pastor could not presence for one reason or another. At times, this is at times erroneously called the priestless mass. There could simply be no holy mass without a priest. In the absence of even a deacon, for the occasion, a willing, able, and prepared layperson may be deputized by the pastor to preside at the Sunday celebration under the following conditions. One, that nothing exclusive of the Holy Mass may be used during the celebration. Two, that the lay pastoral, that, that the pastoral preaching nevertheless may be based on the gospel reading for the Sunday. And three, that the lay person leading the celebration would better adapt the standard format of a prayer meeting instead of still trying to somehow invent another way of holding the celebration. Apostles to the Sick On the particular subject matter of apostolic service to the sick, faithful, only the following are strictly reserved to the ordained minister, and that is the administration of the sacraments of reconciliation and or the anointing of the sick. Everything else that can inspire and console the sick in such difficult times may be done by lay people, specifically those prepared for such as 
a distinct apostolate. Foremost among the different ways of assisting the sick is to lead and prepare them for the reception of the said two sacraments. In the event that the lay persons thus concerned are not themselves extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and the sick request for it, then they request then they request those so commissioned to bring Holy Communion to the sick, prepared to receive it. This is, however, done only in the event that a deacon or priest is not available to do this. Assistance at Marriage The document states, The possibility of delegating the non-ordained faithful to assist as marriages may prove necessary in special circumstances where there is a grave shortage of sacred ministers. The said possibility is subject to no less than a threefold integral condition under pain of nullity of the assisted marriage, that the diocesan bishop delegates a layperson to do it after having established that no priest or deacon is available for the occasion. After that, the said Bishop has a favorable reply warranting the delegation from the Episcopal Conference of the place, and after the said conference has received the pertinent permission enabling enabling the it to do so, enabling them to do so, it is evident that the composite requirement is exacting under pain of invalidity of such assisted marriages. The Minister of Baptism. Under the consecrated maximum that Celis Anarium Supremia Lex Vis, the salvation of people is the supreme law, and for the church a duty prepared layperson may be delegated as an extraordinary minister of baptism under any of the following situations, all subject to the non-availability of an ordained minister. Deputation is given on concrete occasions ad modem actus, and not for any or all circumstances ad mundum habitus. In places where there is persecution of Catholics, in in areas which are strictly mission territories, in cases of urgency and necessity, 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 that was a tongue twister. Otherwise, the delegation may be illicit, at least before the form, forum of law. So if you're, just to give an example, so if you're in a mission territory where no priests or anyone can attend, um, and, you know, and there is someone that needs baptism, someone might be dying or whatever, and you are... You know, you are there on, in mission, you know, as part of Christ's faithful. I mean, it actually has happened to um, to a group of us who were um, helping a man who was uh, a homeless man. And by the way, an alcoholic and suffered from mental illness. Um, there was no one to, to baptize him and he wanted to be baptized. And so we baptized him. And... Uh, when we are called in that situation, we, you know, we have the right to do that because there's no one else there to do it. All right, celebration at funerals. Lay persons may be delegated by the pastor concerned to lead at funeral services under the following simultaneous conditions. One, that the pastor or any ordained minister could not preside <clears throat> thereat for reasonable cause. 
too, that the layperson so deputed should be well prepared doctrinally. And three, that the standard funeral rites should be observed by the layperson delegate. For that, the deputation should be made occasionally and not permanently. Five, and without wear and without wearing commonly known vestments and doing the usual actions done by ordained ministers, the delegate Christian faithful should preserve his lay identity as much as possible. I'm going to take a drink here. So notes on the extraordinary ministers of the Holy Communion. When members of the laity are formally deputized for the distinct ministry, which is already a standing and common reality in the church, in these times the world over, it would be good to forward the following key doctrinal practical points regarding the supplementary and extraordinary function. A. The bishop may deputize laypersons for the ministry, either occasionally at given situations or permanently for a specific time frame. B. The pastor, in exceptional circumstances or situations, may do the delegation for the same Eucharistic minister, but only for the occasion, not on the permanent basis. C. The laypersons thus authorized to give Holy Communion may do this during Eucharistic celebrations proper and outside thereof when the sick, properly disposed, ask for communion to be brought to them. The bishop or the pastor presiding at the Eucharistic celebration should also give Holy Communion during Eucharistic celebrations, although there are already lay ministers doing the same. The lay min- and e. The lay ministries, ministers should not receive Holy Communion themselves together with the bishop or the priest presiding at the Eucharistic celebration as if there were concelebrants. Okay, and that ends that section on the um, the uh, collaboration between the clergy and the laity. And when we begin next time, we will be talking about the acts and decrees of the secondary plenary council of the Philippines. But um, when I when I do read that section, you know, this going on in the in the Philippines is is of interest to us, important interest to us. Um, because of it, it expands and it tells us what the lay people, um, you know, have rights to and are obligated to do in their duties. Okay, with that, I'm going to go to the Bible reading I talked to you about, uh, which is Matthew 20, verses 1 through 7. So this is about the workers in the vineyard. And as I'm reading this, consider yourself one of the one of the workers in the vineyard, one of the workers in the world. We are the lay faithful. Remember that we are 99.96% of the Christian faithful in the world acting um you know, according to what God has sent us to do as disciples, proclaiming the kingdom of the Lord. Um, and it's by what we see, act, and do. All right. Matthew 20, 1 through 7. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out at dawn to hire laborers for the vineyard. After agreeing with them for the usual daily wage, he sent them into the vineyard. Going out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, 
you go into my vineyard and and I will give you what is just. So they went off and he went out again around noon and around three o'clock and did likewise. Going out about five o'clock, he found others standing around and said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They answered, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into my vineyard. We're going to stop there. Okay, now consider consider that reading. Consider yourselves, you know, as um, our Lord and what his charge is to us, to us um, in the world, us lay faithful in the world. You know, we, we are the ones out there in all the different professions going on. And your profession, you know, it could be your vocation um, as a uh, stay-at-home parent, raising your children, preparing them for the, you know, the world um, as a Christian person. Um, you know, we are all called to holiness. And that is that is going to be our whole next thought here um, and what we're talking about. We're talking about our call to holiness. You know, I told you I ride for the Carmel brand. And in, you know, in Carmel, you know, the highest vocation, and this is the same for, and you'll find out today in this reading today, um, with St. John Paul II, which will be our next reading. We're going to be reading um, Christi Fidelis Leci, which is a uh, document, um, and it is very important to the church. Um, And it, it, it talks about, completely about, what we as lay faithful are to do. So first of all, just always remember that we are called to holiness. And you can think of saints. And, um, you know, there are, we don't have to be like a famous saint. um, But we have to be holy in what we do with our neighbors around us. In what we're, what our profession talks to us, we carry, we carry Christ with us at all times. You know, we are the face of Christ to other people. And um, and that's how we live out our vocation. All right. So so our next reading, like I said, is going to be St. John Paul II, Christi Fidelis Leci. I'm going to read from a, a few sections. One will be on the introduction um, of this document. And um, then I will go into the call, call to holiness and finish up with um, what we do as our the life of holiness in the world. All right. This introduction is helpful, I think, because Christy Fidelis Leci is famous in the church, and it gives you um, just a little synopsis of what, what we are doing here. Again, this is from the great St. John Paul II. Um, all right. And uh, this is paragraph one. The introduction, the lay members of Christ's faithful people, Christi Fidelis Leci, whose vocation and mission in the church and in the world 20 years after the Second Vatican Council was the topic of the 1987 Synod of Bishops, are those who form, form that part of the people of God which might be likened to the laborers in the vineyard mentioned in Matthew's Gospel. For the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. The gospel parable sets 
before our eyes the Lord's vast vineyard and the multitude of persons, both men and women, who are called and sent forth by him to labor in it. The vineyard is the whole world. CF Matthew thirteen thirty eight, which is to be transferred, which is to be transformed according to the plan of God in view of the final coming of the kingdom of God. All right, now this second section, um, paragraph two, is called You Go Into My Vineyard Too. And going out above the third hour, he saw others standing in the marketplace, and to them he said, You go into my vineyard too. That is Matthew 23, 4. From that distant day, the call of the Lord, you go into my vineyard too, never fails to resound in the course of history. It is addressed to every person who comes into the world. In our times, the church after Vatican II, in a renewed outpouring of the spirit of Pentecost, has come to a more lively awareness of her missionary nature and has listened again to the voice of her Lord, who sends her forth into the world as the universal sacrament of salvation. You go too. The call is a concern not only of pastors, clergy, and men and women religious. The call is addressed to everyone. Lay people as well are all personally called by the Lord, from whom they receive a mission on behalf of the church and the world. In preaching to the people, St. Gregory the Great recalls this fact and comments on the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Keep watch over your manner of life, dear people, and make sure that you are indeed the Lord's laborers. Each person should take into account what he does and consider it Consider if he is laboring in the vineyard of the Lord. And that's uh, two. The council in the particular with its rich doctrinal, spiritual, and pastoral patrimony has written as never before on the nature, dignity, spirituality, mission, and responsibility of the lay faithful. And the council fathers, re-echoing the call of Christ, have summoned all the lay faithful, both men and women, to labor in the vineyard. The council then makes an earnest plea in the Lord's name that all lay people give a glad, generous, and prompt response to the impulse of the Holy Spirit and the voice of Christ, who is giving them an especially urgent invitation at this moment. Young people should feel this that this call is directed to them in particular, and they should respond to it eagerly and magnanimously. The Lord himself renews his invitation to all the lay faithful. Come closer to him every day and with the recognition that what is his is also their own. Philippians 2.5 They ought to associate themselves with him in his saving mission. Once again, he sends them into every town and place where he himself is come. That is CF Luke 10.1 and um, number 3 in this um document. You go into my vineyard too. During the symbol, synod of, whoops, I was going to stop here. So I'm not going to read that section. We're going to go on to the new section, which is called the call. We are called to holiness. And we begin on, um, this is section 16 and uh, paragraph 16, called to holiness. 
We come to a full sense of the dignity of the lay faithful if we consider the prime and fundamental vocation that the Father assigns to each of them in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, the vocation to holiness, that is the perfection of charity. Holiness is the greatest testimony of the dignity conferred on a disciple of Christ. I want to digress here. Remember, when you know, being called to holiness means, you know, we are always learning, we are always growing, we participate in God's mission uh, for his people, you know, and, and as we climb the ladder to heaven, um, you know, we are always growing in holiness, we are always looking to God, getting our aim, aiming our souls towards God, towards heaven, and um, and listening to the call of the Father, the will of the Father. All right, we're going to go on to this um, second paragraph under section 16. The Second Vatican Council has significantly spoken on the universal call to holiness. It is possible to say that this call to holiness is precisely the basic charge entrusted to the sons and daughters of the church by a council which intended to bring a renewal of Christian life based on the gospel. That's 41. This charge is not a simple moral exhortation, but an undeniable requirement arising from the mystery of the church. She is a voice. She is the choice vine. The church, I digress here. The church is the choice vine. How beautiful is that? The church, she is the choice vine, whose branches live and grow with the same holy and life-giving energies that come from Christ. She is the mystical body whose members share in the same life of holiness of the head who is Christ. She is the beloved spouse of the Lord Jesus, who delivered himself up for her sanctification. That's CF Ephesians 5.25 FF. The spirit and sanctified the spirit that sanctified the human nature of Jesus in Mary's virginal womb. CF Luke 1, chapter 1, 35, is the same spirit that is abiding and working in the church to communicate to her the holiness of the Son of God made man. It is ever more urgent that today all Christians take up again the way of the gospel renewal, welcoming in a spirit of generosity the invitation expressed by the Apostle Peter to be holy in conduct. That is 1 Peter 1, verse Arab. Yeah, chapter 1, verse 15. The 1985 Extraordinary Synod, 20 years after the Council, opportunity, opportunely insisted on this urgency. Since the Church in Christ is a mystery, she ought to be considered the sign and instrument of holiness. Men and women, saints have always been the source and origin of renewal in the most difficult circumstances in the Church's history. Today we have the greatest need of saints whom we must assiduously beg God to raise up. That is just really so beautiful, isn't it? You know, we don't we don't really think today, you know, there there are saints all around us growing in holiness. It can be the mother, you know, raising her children, raising them carefully and holy in the church. Um it can be, you know, the the um shop worker um you know b- by virtue um 
you know, of his um, his call to to be holy and with those that work around him, you know, sitting there on a line, you know, putting parts together, um, his very um, presence, his expression of Jesus to them, you know, by his thought, word, and deed. Um, those are examples, you know, all around us. We are out there in um, in the world, being in the vineyard, being examples of Christ. And, um, you know, saints don't always have to be great. You can be a saint. There's probably saints that have never been acknowledged, but by their, their life and what people around them learned. You know, I think Mother Teresa is such an example of that. Um, you know, she tells us in simple little ways, you know, uh, the people around you, they need love. It may be your smile. It may be, you know, just your presence, just your acknowledging them. The idea to be present um, is very saintly. Um, just, you know, by your very being and, um, you know, your example of Christ by your kindness, by your compassion, by your mercy to those around you. Okay, we're going to continue on here. We just finished up um, paragraph 42 under section 16. Now we're going on to the next paragraph. Everyone in the church precisely because they are members receive and thereby. Hold on here just a minute, everyone. I need to take a drink and change pages here. Get me a drink of this yummy lemon water. Okay. Carrying on here. All right, so let's see. We just finished up. I'm going to read that line again. Everyone in the church precisely because they are members receive and thereby share in the common vocation to holiness. In the fullness of this title and on equal par with all the members of the church, the lay faithful are called to holiness. All the faithful of Christ of whatever rank or status are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. That's uh, chapter or paragraph 43. All the Christ followers are invited and bound to pursue holiness and to perfect fulfillment of their own state of life. So we are all working. I'm digressing. We are all working on perfection and um, growing in holiness. And one of the one of the real important things we do in order to do that, and, and it is like the top thing in the Carmelite way of life is is prayer. Your um, relationship with God on a daily basis, and seeing God and being and having and you know realizing that God is present with you, everything and everything you do throughout your day, always look at Him and recognize that He is there with you. That is Carmelite. All right. The call to holiness is rooted in baptism and proposed anew in the other sacraments, principally in the Eucharist. Since Christians are reclothed in Christ Jesus and refreshed by his spirit, they are holy. They therefore have the ability to manifest this holiness and the responsibility to bear witness to it in all that they do. The Apostle Paul never tires of admonishing all Christians to live as if, as is fitting among saints. Ephesians 5.3. Life according to the Spirit, whose fruit, whose fruit is holiness, 
CF Romans 6.22 and Galatians 5.22 stirs up every baptized person and requires each to follow and imitate Jesus Christ in embracing the Beatitudes, in listening and meditating on the Word of God, in conscious and active participation in the liturgical sacrament life of the church, in personal prayer, in family or in community, in the hunger and thirst for justice, in the practice of the commandment of love in all circumstances of life and service to the brethren, especially the least, the poor, and the suffering. That is, you know, I'm going to digress here. You know, when you, whenever you read something in the Bible, um, isn't it just beautiful when it says, you know, when Jesus was moved to compassion, you know, um, and, and when Jesus had pity and compassion on to someone. And, you know, he went to, to the least. He went to the lepers. He went to the mentally ill. He went to the prostitutes. Um, and he also, you know, in his admonishment to the Pharisees, you know, for not seeing, not seeing, you know, that the, that the word of God was being fulfilled in him. Um, so, okay, we're going to go on to the next section, which is section 17. It's the life of the holiness in the world. The vocation of the lay faithful to holiness implies that the life according to the Spirit expresses itself in a particular way in the involvement in temporal affairs and in their participation in earthly activities. Once again, the Apostle admonishes us, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's Colossians 3.17. Applying the Apostle's words to the lay faithful, the council categorically affirms Neither family concerns nor secular affairs should be excluded from their religious program of life. Paragraph 45. Likewise, the Synod Fathers have said, the unity of life of the lay faithful is the greatest importance indeed that they must be sanctified in everyday professional and social life. Therefore, okay, wait a minute. I'm going to go back and read that one more time. Likewise, the Synod Fathers have said the unity of life of the lay faithful is of greatest importance. Indeed, they must be sanctified in everyday professional and social life. Therefore, so to respond to their vocation, the lay faithful must see their daily activities as an occasion to join themselves to God in Christ. The vocation to holiness must be recognized and lived by the lay faithful, first of all, as an undeniable and demanding obligation, as a shining example of the infinite love of the Father that has regenerated them in his own life of holiness. Such a vocation then ought to be called an ecclesial and inseparable element of the new life of baptism, and therefore an element which determines their dignity at the same time the vocation to holiness is intricately connected to mission and to the responsibility okay i'm seeing i'm running out of time here so that was my distraction so i think i'm going to finish up um just with a couple little more things here and uh so that we have time for prayer all right. 
So, in fact, the same holiness which is derived simply from their participating in the church holiness represents their first and fundamental contribution to the building of the church herself, who is the communion of saints. The eyes of the faith behold a wonderful scene, that a countless number of lay people, both men and women, busy at work in their daily life and activity, oftentimes far from view and quite unacclaimed by the world, unknown to the world's greatest personages, but nonetheless looked upon in love by the Father, untiring laborers who work in the Lord's vineyard, confident and steadfast through the power of God's grace. These are the humble yet great builders of the kingdom of God in history. I think um, I think this is a good place to end because it just, um, you know, he just says here, you know, you know, how important, even though we may seem like we're insignificant, but when we are examples of Christ to those around us by our love, by our mercy, and by our compassion, our kindness in the world. And also I have to, really important too, truth and justice. Just as Christ spoke truth, you know, when the Pharisees just weren't getting it, um, we're not just supposed to ignore something that is, you know, um, that is untruthful and unjust, unfair. Um, you know, we have to stand up and we have to 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 be truthful in that, not to become silent and hide our faces. Very important for us in society to um, be like our Lord. You know, calling out a lie, a lie. Um, you know standing up for truth and justice in in the things that are happening around us. All right. Um, With that, I'd like to say a prayer. And um, I'm going to go to our Holy Mother Mary and say the Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with us. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed art thou among... Okay, let me start over, everybody. All right, I'm getting tongue-tied here. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And with that, everyone, we're going to end this podcast. And I thank you all for listening. Um, I also would like to say that we do have um, websites up for the Lansing Diocese uh, we are a watcher group. You can look us up on the Lansing Diocese Watch uh, and just check out some of the things that we're saying um, in our blog and uh, things that may be of interest to you and um, pertinent to what's going on in our church today. God bless you all.